0: All right, Lisa, so recently I took a trip back home down to Southern Virginia, and of course, you know, I've talked about it many times before on this podcast that my current uh, allegiances do not always align with what's going on or has gone on in my hometown. So as you can imagine, uh, being at the playground with my sons and seeing F Biden flags on the back of people's pickup trucks and so forth, It's expected yet. It's still jarring to the eye. Let me put it that way. When you've been away from Southern Virginia Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think I, I'm just a glutton for punishment because also while I was at home trying to relax and chill, (laughs) I guess red table talk is supposed to be relaxing and chill until you find an episode on white extremists. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) goodness. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, oh, I'm intrigued, yet I'm in the wrong space and place to listen to this, but I need to finish it, right? So I ended up watching this episode of Red Table Talk where Dia Khan, uh, a filmmaker, did a documentary called White Right, Meeting the Enemy. And she, instead of internalizing some of the harassment and discrimination and hate against her, she decided to face it. And so she spent time interviewing prominent neo-Nazis and white supremacists to pull together this documentary. And I found it so fascinating that some of those people turned a corner, um, realized uh, the flaws in what they were doing. And so part of me was like, "Hmm, this is interesting. And so of course, you know, I sent it over to you, Lisa, to take a look, to get your opinion on this. Right. So Mm -hmm. maybe we should uh, think through that because I'm trying to digest privilege, but also trying to understand how you turn a corner from that deep a hatred for people. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's thought provoking. That's a pretty massive 180, right. In terms of how you're, you're seeing the world differently after you've kind of taken that shift, but even for the rest of us that don't fall into, um, an extremist category, Like how we come to understand our own privilege and then make a turn, I think is an interesting area of exploration because it doesn't, I don't know that it's always obvious to us how those realizations Mm. kind of make us shift. So I think there's a lot to talk about here.
0: Mm, So let's talk about these 180s here, Lisa.
1: I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed,
0: a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance.
2: Hey, Sarah Gross here. I'm Katherine
0: Taylor.
1: Sarah True here.
0: Hey there. This is Dr. Shawna Payne Gold. Celine here.
1: I'm Haley Chura. Hey, it's Alyssa Gadeski here. I'm a professional triathlete, Ironman champion, professional triathlete, health and fitness writer, a gravel cyclist, two time Olympian, and former All American triathlete. Founder and CEO of Feisty Media. None of us would have had the opportunities we've had in sports without the passing of Title IX and the changes that came in its wake. So, as the hosts of Feisty Media's podcasts, we decided to band together and create a series to tell the stories behind the law that changed everything. This special series will be presented on the Feisty Women's
2: Performance Podcast feed. Subscribe now to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast.
1: This is Nine. 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 nine.
0: Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, ORCA has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs.
1: Innovation has always been part of ORCA's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account.
0: Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, ORCA wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple.
1: For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code LIVEFEISTY15.
2: Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty.
0: So Lisa, I spent a good bit of time teaching at George Washington University. And I remember one of my first cohorts that I had there, I taught there for 10 years as an adjunct uh, in the School of Education. And it was in the graduate school, so I had all master's students. And I remember having a African-American female in her first year of her graduate program, walking into my class. And one of the first classes that we had was a unit on privilege. And I remember her fixing her face, Lisa, to tell me another black woman that she did not in any way experience privilege.
1: And I'm like, huh?
0: What? Wait,
1: what? (laughs) Oh my.
0: (laughs) Oh my! Is right exactly, and so then I, I I'm trying to stick to my usual uh, call in, not call out principles here. I'm like, okay, I need to get curious about this. How in the hell does she think that she doesn't have privilege when she is number one, a student of higher education, number two, a graduate student, which means you already have a degree and you're going for another one, and number three, you're able in some way, shape, or form to afford a private graduate education. Excuse me, ma'am, no, that's not gonna work for me. Clearly we have some work to do and clearly you need to sit in the front row of this class for you to understand what hell is going on here because she didn't get it. She did not get it when it comes to privilege. And I, I think it was because she only understood privilege from the white lens of it. And that was a shame. So we had some work to do there.
1: So I'm curious, did you feel like you broke through, like, was there an awareness after taking your class that privilege extends beyond race? Well, you know, I think that's what made it pretty cool though, was that there
0: were more African-Americans in that class and fortunately, I was able to ask enough questions to draw out different types of privilege across the classroom. And so I didn't have to necessarily, you know, of course, not make an example of a student, but I think other students came to self-realizations that she observed and then applied it to herself. Um, And so, but then again, you know, I'm thinking to myself, she can't be the only person that assumes that the only
1: privilege on the planet is white privilege she can't be the only one that thinks that. way, Right, right, right. I think right now also we talk about, we're talking a lot about white privilege, right, in the ways in which um, individuals enact behaviors that are born of that and systems reinforce racial oppression. There isn't as much attention given to ability privilege, class privilege, sexual orientation privilege in the same way as there is to race and gender. I mean, gender, I think, is under, if if we had to create kind of a salience list right with the most mm-hmm. salient at the top in our current climate it probably well I say that I pause because then I'm like well we just lost row. so maybe gender yeah. is actually vying for the top spot but at least in the last mm-hmm. couple of years race and racial privilege has been Pretty high on the list um of folks thinking about it right and trying to analyze situations, particularly endurance sport as it relates to race so yeah yeah we, yeah. we have to remind ourselves that there's a whole mm-hmm. other litany of privileges and you and I have talked about how it's not oppression Olympics, right but mm-hmm. this kind of intersection of identity privileges and oppressions that we each hold, you know kind of curates our experience in the world in one way or another and I think our personal mm-hmm. journeys to realizing that, yeah is, yeah is an important piece to reflect on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know I have a, a friend of mine who posted, you know, what was it maybe a couple of days ago on her social media. Now she's been on you know Team USA for triathlon. she a number of different accolades. I mean she has a laundry list um, when it comes to her resume and endurance sport. And it's not unusual and uncommon for her to have some type A arrogant white guy kind of insinuate to her or say it flat out, oh, well, this must be your first Ironman or this must be your first triathlon. And she's been on Team USA, but the assumption is the both and because she's privileged in that she can afford to do what we do, right? Highly educated woman, but she's also not privileged in that her skin color. She identifies as a Muslima. There's a number of different things and holding all of that at the same time. So I think you're onto something around what fights for salience in the moment. On one hand, everybody's happy to be out there because we can afford the bike and we can afford the running shoes and we can afford to train and we can afford the registrations and we can afford to get there. But then... When you get there, the assumption that you're a volunteer or that this is your first one or the assumption that you couldn't possibly know what you're doing more than I do, these are privileges and oppressions that happen all at the same time. And so the same mm-hmm. dynamic that was happening for the, uh, the woman in my class happens in endurance sport every single day, every day. And holding yeah. it at the same time, I think, is the, the nuance of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually very hard to do, right? Once you um, have grown in your awareness around your identities and the privilege and the oppression that exists within that, it's quite difficult to sit in both of those spaces at the same time. Um, And I think that we are not taught to do that right like none of us have had any kind of like formal education in how we should manage those contradictions because I think you get the cognitive dissonance piece that's happening there well if I'm experiencing oppression based on my age so people are reading me either as too young or too old for example right then then my whiteness doesn't matter but that's also at play because the assessment of your age is also predicated on your whiteness. So if you weren't white, then the age piece would probably manifest differently, right? Like, and I think Uh that it's really hard to think about that. And and I don't know what it takes. I mean, you and I have talked about our own kind of journeys with different privileges, identity Mm. privileges that we have. Like, you know, with this white supremacist that was on the Red Table Talk, you know, they mm-hmm. described a situation where the the filmmaker talked about how being a young child at a rally and how white supremacists made her feel as mm. a um, young um, girl of color, and that resonated with this white supremacist, right? But I can't imagine mm-hmm. it was just that mm. that that pushed him to go mm-hmm. in a 180 degree opposite direction, right? So there's some kind of incremental change happening or awareness, or is it something that predisposition mm-hmm. and open it. Like, I don't know what that is, right? But yeah, um, yeah. I think about that for myself in that, you know, most of the learning I did around privilege in any kind of, de- with any depth happened after I came to the yes. United States, cause it wasn't really being discussed um, in the UK. At least I wasn't aware of it. Maybe it was being discussed and I just wasn't aware of it. Um, but mm-hmm. it never, so it never felt jarring for me though. Like incrementally. Mm-hmm. Like every time I learned about something, I'm like, oh, that makes sense, right? Like it made sense rationally and logically. That doesn't mean I don't feel guilt. That doesn't mean that I didn't feel hurt, right? But Mm -hmm. I didn't, There wasn't like, I can't pinpoint a thing that I can say that's the moment that shifted my view on heterosexual privilege or shifted Mm. my view on um, class privilege or whatever, right? Like, yeah, yep, yep. Absolutely.
0: Well, and you know, the, that's, uh, I don't think I can necessarily pinpoint like one or two uh, moments when I understood my areas of privilege. I think it's been an arc over time. So, you know, right. for, and, and I think it's, it can be a bit similar to the the student that I was mentioning before. It can be extremely difficult to want to think through forms of privilege when you are part of a group, the only group that has been kidnapped and enslaved in this country. It's hard for anything yeah, to yeah. even be entertained beyond that, right? So it's like, you know, you, I, I can't, uh, or or you can, but it is extremely difficult to think outside of that. So you want me to think about 1619 Project while also thinking about my uh, Protestant Christian privilege at the very same time? right (laughs) like hold up wait a minute that's a little harder to do or you want me to think about um blackness and lynchings when i was raised outside of a city named lynchburg but then you also want me to think about how i don't have to suffer um any discrimination because of walking hand in hand Um, in public with the person that I love, because I identify as a straight person, like uh, the, it feels as if it's almost like a, um, it's not a culture shock, but it it is quite jarring in a way that's different, because you're so entrenched in that priority identity group that has been prioritized as those that were most disenfranchised, so, you know, those are the areas that I think about often, but, you know, I think I've shared this particular piece before, the Protestant Christian piece didn't hit me as much until recently. I mean, I know I was aware of it, but as far as how entrenched it was, not until more recently. Straightness was part of the reason why I wrote my dissertation specifically on LGBT students and their um, coming out processes and how people really ostracized them um, in religious settings. And so, you know, I had a better handle on that. Um, But the Protestant Christian piece, it's just sickening. It's just sickening on a regular basis here in the U.S. Very sickening.
1: So when you say recently, how recently did that come to you? Um, I think it was probably in the last,
0: I would probably say the last 10 years or less when the conversations about Prayer in and around schools continued to bubble up, especially, you know, in my hometown area, Southern Virginia, et cetera. Because again, I really feel strongly that I'm wired differently. When my family and friends at home are extremely upset that, oh, well, there, you know, there's no prayer in schools. And I'm thinking to myself, well, which prayers are you talking about? Because you're okay with our prayers as Protestant Christians. But if my friend who is Muslim, stops and prays five times a day in the middle of school, then you would have a problem with it, then you would label them as a terrorist, then you would call them all type of extremists, so which prayer are you supporting, and so for me, that's when I'm like, y'all are sick then, because the rules seem to only benefit us, and that's not okay with me, that the rules only right. benefit us in this group, I'm not yeah. okay with that, if you want to have yoga and you worship this chair in the middle of your living room, then I believe you should be able to do that. But, you know again, it, it's it's only when the rules are applied to you that you're okay with it. And that's when yeah. you know that yeah. arc of you know, when you're from an extremely conservative Christian, Protestant Christian area of the country, it's not ok. You know, like mm-hmm. like even mm-hmm. as a Christian, yes, i I pray. but, I have a problem with us praying at a public school athletic event, not because I have a problem being a person of prayer, but because I'm not hearing anybody else's prayers being accepted. That's my problem with the bullshit. So, you know, being able to be okay with everyone's identity groups outside of our own. Yeah, I send it and it, it's, it's icky. <laughs> it's, it's beyond icky. Um, <laughs> Because I just see it. I see it so clearly. I'm like, I'm not okay with the rules only applying to us, y'all. I'm I'm not okay with that. Just not.
1: Yeah. And I think what you're also describing is kind of a level of introspection, right? Where something started to like kind of scratch at you a little bit. And then you started to give it your attention and then you started to unfold and you realized the depth of it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a piece of it, isn't it? Like when you Mm -hmm. notice something. That doesn't, and it just doesn't sit very well. Like, mm-hmm. rather than ignoring that, actually explore it and pull on the thread, I think. And oh, I, yeah. Oh, I yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably don't pull on the thread of some of those, I'm using air quotes here, kind of smaller mm-hmm. privileges. So, not the big ones, the race, the gender, right? Like, some yes. of those um, other areas of identity privilege that we just don't think about and then mm-hmm. um, you pulled on the thread there and it kind yep. of opened, opened, it unraveled for you. <laughs> oh yeah, big
0: time, big time. And well, and you know, even like, um, I'll give another example, it's not related to endurance sport, but it is related to Protestant Christian privilege. The fact that, for example, uh, incoming Congress people or anyone that is being sworn into public service and it being a... A, a newsworthy story when the person doesn't place their hand on a Christian Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm like, y'all, this is some bullshit right here, right now. Like, uh, are you kidding? No, that's not okay. Now, yes, if I, y'all don't want me to be in public service at all, because I cuss too much, but I'm just saying, if I was, and I put my hand on a Bible That would be my choice, but I'm also thrilled for that person that chooses to go to the Library of Congress and get uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, other religious texts, which he had many of them to use for their swearing in. But the mere fact that it is a storyline that we're using something other than a Christian Bible is just yuck to me. It's just yuck. Like, why is that newsworthy?
1: Yeah, that's a really great point, actually, thinking about how can we illuminate some of those other privileges that we don't think about very much is probably by looking at the news, because then those, those moments that get elevated, like what you just described as newsworthy, they're newsworthy because they don't happen very often and they don't happen very often because they're not the norm and they're not the norm because they're not privileged, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, I, I am in full support of that,
0: you know, that public servant that's sworn in with their hand on the Quran. I'm in a hundred percent support of it. And I think it's more than laughable that it needs to be newsworthy because we're now highlighting difference when we say we're all about difference that's not okay with me at all. It's not okay. So, you know, I, I notice it and not okay with it. And, you know, even some of the calendaring. So for example, a lot of my friends who identify as African-American, but they were born and raised kind of in New York and other areas where there was a larger Jewish population. They're very used to these more inclusive school calendars, for example, that are used to including Jewish religious holidays and so forth. Whereas me from Southern Virginia, it's like, it's Christmas and Easter, and that's about it. Okay. If it's not a Christian holiday, it's probably not uh, the school calendar is not wrapped around it as much, much less any other religious holiday. And so, you know, just being aware of, oh, so we can, <laughs> yeah, okay, we're cool with Easter Monday, if you will, being off for school children, but we're not okay with being cognizant of Ramadan and when, for example, after school activities are scheduled because people need to break their fast. That's not okay with me. So I I think I have increasingly pulled the thread that continues to piss me off about things. Um, And what I think is really interesting about the pulling the thread piece that you're mentioning is that, unfortunately, we, we talk about white fragility all the time. I think privilege fragility around a lot of things happens because just because I'm thinking about such things and talking about them publicly or around friends and family, there's a fragility of oh my God, Shauna's renouncing her faith and everything she grew. No, I'm not. I'm just not falling for the okie doke that we're the only the only deal in town. Let's put it that way. And so but but there's that fragility around oh if you're even entertaining other groups, then you are then in some way inherently rejecting all of your own faith Mm, no that ain't it yeah i I don't i I don't think that's fair to anybody involved
1: yeah it's a great point like it's not all or nothing right um and so that is that fragility that's happening there and it's happening in different ways because the norm is being disrupted and i think about religion in the context Mm -hmm. of the the united kingdom right which has a quote-unquote state religion church of england which is protestant i think anglican um and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so every, all the school holidays are around Christian holidays, right? Uh, at least uh, they were, I imagine uh-huh. that school districts have come a little further than the eighties at this point, I would hope in some places. Um, but you know, like we, they still have Easter holidays, where you get two or three weeks off of school over Easter and Good Friday is a Mm -hmm. a national holiday and Easter Monday is a national holiday. And I've had family members be like, oh, what are you doing over the Easter weekend? And I was like, well, one, we don't get the days off, which is also weird, right? Because we get Christmas off, but not Easter so that I don't the or that's just weird in this country like the whole freedom mm-hmm. of religion thing is like sometimes but not always.
0: Right. You know
1: like it it applies in one way and not an, another but um then it's kind of then you know I have try to have the conversation but why do you want to have Easter and celebrate Easter because it's fundamentally a Christian religious holiday and to my knowledge you do not you know subscribe to said religion so Right. What right is right it right right wanting but it's so ingrained right like that's right it's so ingrained um
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah well and you know you're bringing up a great point I mean that's what I was fearing because we talked about it before around what Juneteenth may or may not look like moving forward in future years is that you know individuals who may not have a deeper effect or awareness of what Juneteenth really means, will still be looking like, oh, do you have Juneteenth off? What are you gonna do with your day? (laughs) Like, I I think we'll eventually get to that place with that as well, um, because eventually, just like our other US holidays, it will become ingrained in those ways. So I I think that's, you know, another piece of the puzzle too. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, I'm always struck though, Lisa, about the, privilege that comes with what we've talked about before on this podcast around money and the ickiness around privilege when it comes to money, whether it's filthy, stinking rich, or I'm relatively comfortable, or whatever level it is, because, you know, I think it's extremely, unless you're an economist in the US, I don't think anyone really knows what level they're on. Um, And so given that, you know, I still feel like, there's something to be said when you can go into the grocery store and not necessarily look at prices. You pick up what you need, you pay for it and walk out or being able to get to an actual grocery store with fresh produce because of where you live or the money that you have in order to pay for those products. So I, I, I think that, you know, class and money is, it's, it cuts across everything. Um, And it's just so insidious, so insidious in this country.
1: Yeah. And what's funny is I growing up in the UK, and I don't know if any of any of the UK listeners on here would uh, agree, (laughs) but I did not. I learned that the United States was a classless society. (laughs) really yeah in that right the you you think about the united kingdom it has the aristocracy and like lords and all that good stuff and i don't know enough about it to describe it well but there's very Mm -hmm. entrenched there's a very entrenched almost cased system in terms of class in the united kingdom a lot of generational wealth that comes down from like land ownership and kings and queens and blah 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 Mm -hmm. right and um so in that sense, the U.S. doesn't have a class system, right? It's it's classless mm-hmm. because it doesn't have class in the same way that we might understand it from a U.K. lens. But it does yes. have class, obviously, right? Like a social yeah. stratification based on socioeconomic status. So I always find that interesting kind of bridging the divide um, between how I understood class, social class, and money growing up mm. in the United Kingdom vis-a-vis how it's interpreted here. And, you know, I think I certainly probably would just put my family in middle class because that's what everyone Mm -hmm. does right but in the UK it's interesting because one of the um vehicles by which you can move class would be education and part of the reason for that at least historically, I believe that there it's slightly different now, but higher education is free, right? So I did not pay a dime for my undergraduate degree. I had um, a student loan to pay for living expenses, but I had no um, loans related to uh, getting the degree itself. And so when I would meet US people who were studying abroad mm-hmm. or in other ways. And they would tell me that there's $70,000 in debt or whatever. Some I just could not wrap my head around it. So in the UK, you get a degree, you largely come out with very little debt. So your ability to kind of then get a um, white collar position, professional position, whether that's a lawyer or whatever, is a little more open to you because you're not saddled with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, right? That you're like trying to figure out how the heck are you going to pay and not go bankrupt? So that also shapes how we think about class and wealth in the UK that's different to the US. I think some of the same broad issues exist, right? But because Mm. class is so wrapped up in royalty and land ownership and aristocracy and such, it just... I think I process it differently. So yeah. I, I do I definitely have class privilege now, right? I because right. of what, right. what you just described is going to the grocery store. I mean, less so right now because of inflation, but like I can go to the grocery right. store. Right. And, right. Right. You right. Know, right. Not think about um mm-hmm. what how much something is. You know, I can get a mortgage, right? I can mm-hmm. pay the mortgage, right? I'm not a perpetual renter. So right. certainly. Right but i think it's been a kind of interesting journey for me because i have all of this entrenched stuff around class from the uk whereas if you're wealthy you're kind of an mm. asshole you know what i mean because it's like yes. the wealth you have is from is from this historic attachment to colonialism and aristocracy and owning mm-hmm. people not in the same way in the us right like but so it's like it's like i don't want to be one of them right? Like, cause I don't have that. So it's been an interesting journey to think about it, but I, you know, I can afford to do a triathlon. I can afford to do a bike race. I can afford to right. buy a bike.
0: Right. You know?
1: right, right, right. Exactly.
0: And I wonder, Lisa, because you're, you're bringing up a great point around that whole, you know, the socioeconomic status and kind of the, the icky feeling that comes along with it. And I wonder if, well, let me, let me rewind a little bit. I would suggest that there are some people in the Black community that are that have some of the money ick, meaning you know, hanging money onto um, uh, ill-acquired money, <laughs> and and then also the other hand is, but being able to show some bit of affluence is also something that has been earned, right? So, like for example, when my dad retired after 40 years with virginia power the first thing he did wasn't oh i'm going to go you know sit down at home he went and bought a brand new white suburban and paid for it in cash because he could and that was in a kind of a status symbol but also a i am a black man in this country that's able to do that as a boomer right and so you know part of me kind of it, it gets a little interesting because In the black community, we have lots of people that have acquired their money, whether it's by entertainment or by being an athlete or some other form of fame. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. And there's some ill-informed ways of acquiring money that also connect with the history of disenfranchisement, right? So when you know, when Biggie Smalls talks about, you know, having to, you know, basically get diapers and milk for his baby girl by, you know, unsavory means. It wasn't that he wanted to do it by unsavory means. It was that he was forced to because of systemic issues, especially when it relates to Black men. So, you know, for me, I am constantly kind of trying to find the balance between, um, what we talked about before, Lisa, um, have a, a person in the triathlon community in the black triathlon community Daryl Freeman that recently passed away um, down in Nashville Tennessee that was a well-known millionaire businessman um on the board of trustees of universities and you know came from very humble means well we don't talk about the Daryl Freemans that are um affluent we usually talk about the Elon Musk that are affluent and so you know to Highlight money as being something that is philanthropic. I I just think that we don't do that very often, and we should. Um, and I'm not yeah. sure how to get the money ick off of that <laughs> because it's
1: clearly there. Clearly, yeah, there. yeah. And and one thing I I didn't make explicit in my description of class and money in the UK is it's it's very much race racialized too, right? Because when we're talking oh, about uh-huh. like mm-hmm. landowners and we're talking about the monarchy and all of that quote, quote, yeah. old money, it's almost universally white people. Um, mm-hmm. So that also, I just thought about that when you were talking, I was like, I didn't make that point. Right. Because I think growing up when I thought about class and money and wealth, I wasn't racializing it. Right. It's oh, like, yeah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that. I wasn't doing that intersection. Um, mm-hmm. And so it is. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we need to do more work on this class piece. Right. And the ick around it and Mm -hmm. the judgments that we make about people who do and do not have money and how they got them. Got it. Like in the UK, like I distinctly remember family members Mm. deriding individuals who were almost always white because they were like new money. Right. Like they had like won, won the lottery or they had made money. Um, you know, grown up working mm-hmm. class or poor, but they'd made money through some yeah. business means or whatever. And yeah. they were yeah. like, they were, um, yeah, not, not, they were mocked a little bit. Right. Mm. So mm-hmm. that's really interesting. So then I have to think about, oh gosh, so how much did that affect my sense of self growing up in terms of then wanting to, what does it mean for people to see me as? yes wealthy or new money right
0: yes yes yeah well and you know that's such an important point that you're bringing up because i've been uh reading some financial stuff and all of that and you know i remember growing up how it was almost a slur to call a kid a trust fund baby and now i'm finally at the place where you know that especially with my parents getting older my grandmother is 96 you know making sure, especially because I'm in one state, they're in another, making sure that financially things are put away for my sons. That's what we're doing is developing a trust for them. That used to be, I mean, a huge no-no. It's like, oh, you wow. you must be, yeah. you know, the, the and, and not to say that there's many zeros in these accounts. I'm just simply saying we're doing it as a legal means to not have to deal with mm-hmm. power of attorney mm-hmm. and so forth, things like that. But just the mere naming of oh, well, Trey and Kendrick are going to be trust fund babies. Like, let yeah. for say that like 30 years ago. It's like, even if you were, you wouldn't say it publicly. You'd be like, no, yeah. be quiet. Don't say that. Yeah. And now it's like, oh no, I'm very grateful to say that right. my kids will be trust fund babies, that they won't have to go through 17 layers of state law to get As as my dad says, they won't have to go through 17 layers of state law to get the $5 I left them when I'm out of here. That's what he says all the time. Um, But, you know, we're doing it for those legal reasons. But yeah, just the kind of the bad vibe that we've given people that either have acquired money recently or just have always had old money. So I, I think that's interesting. So maybe we need to do something where we talk specifically about um, what has been called affluenza when you have money. Um, and it, uh, it affects how you view the world in a way that literally, um, how can I say it's, I would say it's toxic. (laughs) Let me just put it that way. It's toxic. Um, but yeah,
1: maybe we need to talk about that a little bit more because you can't do endurance sport without at least some money, you know? Yeah. I think that would be great. I haven't heard that term affluenza, but I think that we should write that down and definitely talk more about that because it's super relevant. to yeah. Sport. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All
0: right. Well, Lisa, I don't know if you had a hell yeah or a hell no, nah, but I'm just going to throw one quick one in. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. Um, again, kudos to all of the businesses and organizations that are stepping forward to continue to fight for abortion rights and access for the individuals who may need it uh, that work for them as employees. Yelp, as well as a laundry list of other organizations like Starbucks and so forth, are making sure that their employees have a budget and access to make that happen. So kudos to you all for making sure uh, that that happens. Um, I remember seeing uh, W. Kamal Bell have a shirt on that said, uh, I am... I am aiding and abetting abortion, right? Where it talked about how, you know, basically he was saying that he is going to support uh, the rights of, of those that um, choose what's needed um, for their health or simply just their decision with their body. So I'm really grateful for those organizations that are continuing to do that.
1: Yeah, and I actually have a hell yeah, but um, it's the Presidential Medal of Freedom that yes. President Biden gave to Megan Rapino and Simone Biles, um, yes. which was awesome for that. Um, but then the, I guess the hell nah is going to be for all the haters that got pissed that uh, Simone Biles got this uh, presidential honor because she's so young, right? Because she's mm-hmm. the youngest person. And how did she deserve this? Why did she get it? As mm-hmm. though her accomplishments... Um, don't matter just because she's a younger person, right? So there's, Mm -hmm. so how about about some age privilege, right? Like that you, you're not deserving of the presidential medal of freedom on, I think I'm probably butchering the name of that medal, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, because, Mm -hmm. because you're younger, like that means you can't contribute as a young person. So that's really annoying to me and yeah, pretty pretty insidious how her, she's getting cut down because of her age and also because of her race and also because of her gender. Right. But I'm like, there you go. Well,
0: but you're hitting the nail on the head on age though, because any logical person would stop and think about her sport specifically, which starts very young anyway. So when you start young, you can accomplish a lot young, which then means you will receive these awards and honors right. younger. Yes. Yes. So you don't have to be whatever age in order to get the awards. You're probably going to get them earlier because that is inherent to the damn sport. Come on, y'all. Y'all, y'all haters right. are not logical in any way, shape or form. So I, I hear yeah. you. I, I, yeah. I know that's one of the many layers of of challenge when it comes to Simone, but come on, y'all. Come on. They, they started when they were six, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. Come on.
1: Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus, the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did
0: this race in 2016 and I have to say it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim, but I hear unlike 2016, this year they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world.
1: So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctri.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today.
0: All right, Lisa, I have completely lost my mojo for cycling. It's nowhere to be found. But maybe with a brand new bike computer,
1: I'll get back into the swing of things. I definitely know the feeling. Um, I did get a new bike this summer and a new bike computer. So I'm really hoping that those two will be the perfect match to get us back into our cycling routine.
0: The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today, with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Free global maps with points of interest included, like cafes or campsites. Lisa, you know we love our coffee, Mm -hmm. but that
1: means that we can kind of explore a little bit, and we can do that with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. You know, quite honestly, you sold me right there with the fact that it's going to tell me where the coffee is. I mean, that's that's really all I need, but also the Caro 2's touchscreen display is intuitive, responsive and in full color. Yay. So your navigation experience is more like a smartphone than a GPS device. You'll see your data more clearly than ever, even in rugged conditions, since the screen is scratch resistant with anti-glare and water droplet projection.
0: Oh my goodness. And I am so rough on my electronics. I need the scratch resistant piece right there. But, you know, tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Karu two as their trusted riding companions, including Flora Duffy. Hammerhead's Karu two was named bicycling magazine's editor's choice in GPS cycling computers for the past two years and continues to collect accolades throughout the sport
1: so unfazed listeners we have an exclusive offer for you for a limited time you can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a hammerhead caro 2 visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code unfazed and remember that's with a ph and at the checkout to get yours today unfazed we have a promo code lisa Woohoo! Unphased, a podcast produced by Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Millie Perry. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social media at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women and Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.